When I was in college, I got to know a family in our church, um, four kids about my age, and, and uh, great kids became good friends while I was at that church during my college years, and loved getting to know their father as well. He was one of those guys that very approachable, um, one of those very genuine kinds of people, easy to get to know, easy to be around, and, and really just a wonderful, wonderful, lovely man. He was uh, one of those guys that was, at that time, he was in what I would say really the prime of his life. He was at the peak of his career, well-respected uh, by everybody in the community, well-respected by people in his profession. He was one of those people everybody knew, everybody respected, everybody had a good regard for. He was one of those guys, too, you would look at and say he is the picture of good health. He played tennis a couple times a week. I never played tennis against him, but I hear he, he had a pretty good tennis game. Um, very active, very physically active, in good physical condition. But one day he began to realize he was a little bit, little bit fatigued, a little tired, didn't have quite the stamina that he once had had. And so he made an appointment to talk with his doctor and come in for a checkup to, uh, to just kind of see, you know, what's going on and, and why don't I have quite the, the, the stamina that I, that I once enjoyed. So he went into the doctor and the doctor ran a few tests and said to him, I think we need to schedule a surgery just to do some exploration, see what's going on. I remember talking with him at church on a Sunday morning, and he said, yeah, I'm going into the hospital tomorrow, and the doctors want to take a look. They don't really, you know, it's more just a precaution, just want to see if there's something that they should be aware of. So he went into the hospital the next day, went in for his surgery, and the doctors opened him up, and they found that his entire abdomen was completely filled with cancer. Throughout his organs, it was all through his body. Less than a week later, he never left the hospital. Less than a week later, he died. And a week after that, we were all sitting at his funeral, and I was thinking, just days earlier, I had been talking with him. And who would have known? Looking at this man who looked like the picture of health, and there he was. It's a shocking story, yes, and it's a true story. I actually knew the man, I actually knew his kids, knew his wife, knew this family. But there's an important part of the story that I didn't mention, and that is that this man was one of the finest medical doctors in the entire area. He was a highly skilled surgeon, and he was widely regarded as one of the best doctors around to do the very surgery that he had just done. If anybody should have known the warning signs, if anybody should have seen what was going on in his body, certainly Dr. Scherer would have been that man. 
he would have been able to spot that in, in other people. He should have known beyond any doubt what are the symptoms of such a life-threatening disease. But who knew how long that disease had been in his body, eating away at his organs, doing that damaging work that would ultimately take his life. I remember sitting with his kids and we talked about this. They had no idea. They had no clue, even his wife, completely surprised. But we all wondered, what did he know? What was he aware of? I think when we come to this passage today in Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus' words both comforting and confronting and I think very ironic in this passage. Just like this story with my friend Dr. Scherer, the, the reality is, as Jesus says, every, every person in this story is carrying an illness. Every single person in the account that we're going to look at is broken in some way. And some are fully aware of their condition, yet there are others who think they are well, but they are not. They are, like my friend, riddled with a disease that is taking their life while they think they are perfectly well. Let's look at our passage, and then we'll unfold it and see what God has for us in it. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. No doubt by now in our study in, 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 in Mark, you, you are beginning to see some, uh, some similarities with some of the previous passages. This, this section is no different. We see some things here in this passage that are very similar to things that we have already seen in, in Mark's gospel. The, the setting, once again, is right here at the north end of the, the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus lives now. This is where he has taken up residence, and, and this is yet again where, where the scene takes place. 
And we also see that crowds are coming to him. Whenever Jesus goes out, whenever Jesus is teaching, the crowds show up. They just, they just come. They, they are just there. And Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom. We've seen that in a number of passages that, that when Jesus speaks, he is speaking about the kingdom. He is describing the kingdom. He is he is teaching them about the kingdom which has drawn near to them. And he sometimes uses that language. But not only is he teaching about the kingdom, he is also demonstrating the kingdom. And whenever we look at Jesus, we have to see what is he doing, what is he saying, all of these things, because they are in some way demonstrating or teaching or illustrating something about the kingdom of God. And he is apparently walking along a road, verse 14, where this particular account takes place. The scene looks remarkably similar to chapter 1, verses, uh, beginning at verse 16. He's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen, and Jesus says, follow me, and I will be, make you become fishers of men, and immediately they leave their nets and follow him. Very, very similar to, to the scene that we, that we have seen in, in that passage. And once again, in Mark's characteristic fashion, there, there is very little detail in the words themselves, but every single word is absolutely loaded with meaning. And significance. Mark is one of those people, he in some ways writes like a poet. If you ever read good poetry, you know that there are few words, but every single word carries weight and has some kind of deeper meaning, deeper significance. There is loads of meaning in every word, every movement, every action of this, of this passage. So let's look at it. We are first introduced in verse 14 to a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. We find this same account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three Gospels record this same account, and it looks remarkably similar in, in each of the Gospels. But there is one difference. Matthew's Gospel calls him Matthew. He names him as Matthew rather than, than Levi. And we also find the name Matthew listed among the name, the, the, the list of the 12 disciples, Matthew, the tax collector, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. And it isn't an uncommon situation throughout Scripture to, to find people who have two names. We see that again and again, both Old Testament and New Testament. We find people with two names. For example, we see that Saul becomes Paul, right? John Mark, the, book, the person of Mark is sometimes called John or John Mark, and so he even has two names. We also find Simon, who is also known as Peter. 
So it's not an unusual situation to, to find a person who, who carries two names, and they are sometimes used interchangeably. Sometimes in the case of somebody like Paul, before conversion he was Saul, afterwards he is known as Paul. Peter gets his name changed, and it, at some point he is, he is almost exclusively Peter, and he's never called Simon again, and so, so there's a lot of significance in that. So it seems to be a fairly common pattern. And it is widely held that Levi and Matthew are the same person. But what do we know about him? What do we know about Levi, what do we know about Matthew as, as the person? We know, that, we know that he is a tax collector. He sits in this, this tax booth along, along the road, and as people would pass along, he would stop them, and they would have to pay some kind of a toll or some kind of a tax in order to pass, pass along that way. It's one of those things we look at and we bring so much of our own understanding of taxes and paying taxes into the situation, but we have to suspend that. As, as much as we, we despise paying taxes even in our time, Levi is not the same as the person who works for the, the government here or the, the, the tax office here in Australia. When you have to every year file your income tax, it's not quite the same as, as what, what Levi is doing. I have the joy of filing income tax in two countries. I live and work here in Australia, but I'm still a U.S. citizen. So, oh joy, I get to do this twice a year. Isn't that fun? No, it's not. It's a big pain. Um, so, but here we have a difference. With this kind of tax collector... It was regarded as one of the most disreputable of all occupations. It was listed in the Mishnah and the Talmud as one of several despised trades. Not only were tax collectors a corrupt bunch of cheaters and liars, but they were regarded as traitors of their own people. Why is that? Because they are under Roman rule. And so they are actually working for the Roman government. They have sold themselves to the Roman government, and they will cheat their own people for their own, for their own good, for their own gain. They will exploit their own people to get whatever they can out of them. They aligned themselves with Rome and they would abuse their own people for their own personal gain, their own satisfaction, their own greed. Their corruption and their extortion knew absolutely no limits. These were people without any scruples, without any conscience. They would do whatever it took to get money out of your pocket and into theirs. And so they were hated, they were despised. They were the lowest of the low in this society. And so Jesus is walking by, he is walking down the road, and he sees 
he sees Levi sitting in this tax booth. And obviously he sees something much different from what everybody else saw. People would walk by and all they could see was a criminal, a legal criminal working for the government that was basically holding them hostage as well. He sees something very different from what everybody else sees, and we've seen that in previous stories, haven't we? He looks at a paralytic there at the beginning of chapter 2, and he doesn't just see a broken body in need of healing. He sees a soul in need of forgiveness. And he looks at Levi, and he doesn't just see a corrupt tax collector. No, he, he envisions somebody who will no longer use his vice to build the kingdom of Rome, but he, he sees somebody who can work alongside him to build the kingdom of God. I love the way Philip Keller describes this moment he says, fortunately for Matthew, when Jesus looked at him, he didn't just see a tough tax collector or a perverted publican. What the master saw was a man, a man of latent possibilities, a man whose life could be completely changed in character and direction. He saw a man who would no longer live for the love of money, but for the love of God. And looking on this man, the master loved him and called him to be his follower. It's a little bit of a confronting question for us to consider, isn't it? When I think about that, when, when, when Jesus looks at me, what does he see? When Jesus looks at you, what does he see? Does he see the... Does he see the failures that I, that I live with? Does he see the sins that I have committed? Does, what does he see in there? Or does he see the potential of a person who could be cleansed from all of that, who could be redeemed from all of that, whose story could be turned around and used for God's purposes? A person who could be redeemed to become exactly what he created him to be. It's a good question for us to think about. What would we have thought about, about Levi sitting there? What do we think of another person when we see them? Oh, there's a person who's unredeemable. Or do I see the potential in that person? Do I see what what God desires that person to be. I have to tell you, teaching at a college and, and having students in front of me all the time, I'm confronted with this. Do I see before me the potential that God sees in these people? Lives and stories that can be redeemed and used for God's purposes. Or do I look at them and write them off and say, nah. How do we look at other people? How does God look at us? So obviously he looks at Levi and he sees in him 
a man, a life, a person who can be redeemed, who can be restored, who could be useful in his kingdom. You know, verse 14 is so brief. And I think it's difficult in some ways for us to imagine the fullness of what this what this verse means. Jesus says to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Happens so quickly, doesn't it? Follow me, yes, get up, and there's a sense of immediacy there, and, and that's part of the way Mark writes, and immediately things happen very, very quickly there. And he rose and he followed him, and it looks so simple, so instantaneous. But there are two thoughts that run through my mind as I look at that. Two, two thoughts that I think are a part of this. The first is, I have to imagine that God has been at work in Levi prior to that moment. That God has been silently at work preparing him for this moment so that when Jesus comes up and he speaks the word, there is the ability to immediately respond because in the background, God has already by his spirit been at work in Levi's life, creating either discontent, stirring something up, prompting him with 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 a thought or an idea or something. I don't know what that is, but, but from my life of, of ministry and my experience with people, I realize this is what God often does. Before he offers the invitation, he has been at work behind the scenes. He has been at work in the life of the person so that when the moment, when the invitation is given, the person is ready to respond. Over the last couple of years, I've gotten to know a wonderful man from the Middle East, raised uh, in a Muslim family. He's now a believer, but I asked him one day, I said, tell me your story of how you came to faith. And that was exactly the story that he told. He said, it began first with a discontent with where I was. And then he said, God began to speak to me through dreams, not uncommon among, among Muslim background believers. Listen to their stories, how often God begins to speak in dreams. So he said, it, was, it happened over a long period of time with me, with my wife. And he said, then in that moment when I heard the gospel, we believed instantly. It looked instant, but he said the reality is that God had been at work. He had been doing something. So when that moment came, it's very much like this. Follow me. Yes, we will follow you. It looked so instantaneous, but the reality is God has been at work over time. Heard the same thing from a, a Buddhist who who was a, a priest for years and years, and when somebody explained the gospel to him, he instantly believed and said, this is the man that I have been looking for all my life. When he heard about Jesus. How would he know that? 
because God is silently working, sometimes not so silently, working in the background so that when the invitation is given, there is the openness to receive. Which I think informs us in the way we pray for people who are not in that place, who, who we want to see come into faith with Jesus. We, we can pray for them, God, be at work in their lives. Stir them, move them, do something. Make them uncomfortable, make them discontent until they come face to face with Jesus. It informs the way we pray. But second, I, as I look at this, I imagine as we look at this, this radical response, this instantaneous belief, and he rose and he, and he followed him. It, it, it's a fairly radical response, but, but think about what this means for Levi. This means an entire change of life for him. This means that once he walks away from that, that job, he can never go back again. It means that he has to break all of his ties with Rome. It means the loss of his wealth. It means the loss of his job. It means potentially the loss of his friends and perhaps even his family. In fact, it is Matthew who records in his gospel these words of Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Who would understand the weight of those words more? And Levi, as he walks away from everything, he completely cuts ties with, with the life that he knew before. We have to see here that Matthew's commitment comes at a very high cost, and that would be deeply tested throughout his lifetime. I don't know if you have ever been through that kind of a testing of your faith, some of us have, where you go through a season or you go through a circumstance where you are confronted with this question, do I really believe this? Because if I do, it, it requires a wholehearted, complete giving of my life to the Master. There is no half-heartedness in this. I've been through a season like that. Some of you have been through seasons like that where you are confronted with that question. Do I really believe this? Can I take up my cross? Can I die to myself and follow Jesus? Or can I just limp along with a half-hearted faith? Jesus won't allow that to happen. He demands this, this kind of whole life commitment. Reminds me of the, the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Levi counts that cost and he leaves the toll booth behind and he starts 
on this lifetime journey with Jesus. He takes up that invitation and he follows along with him. The scene moves from the tax office to verse 15 to a home, probably Levi's home, where he is celebrating this new life with Jesus, and so he invites all of his friends. Well, who are his friends? Well, fellow tax collectors. I kind of look at this scene and I think, this isn't real good for Rome, because they're losing all their tax collectors. But that's okay. And all these various other sinners of one sort and another. Don't you love this scene where the first thing that Levi does is he invites all of his friends and says, guess what, I, I have just experienced something and I want you to meet the person who has, who has just changed my life. We see that again and again, we, don't we? The woman at the well, come and hear a man who told me everything about me. Brings people to Jesus. And, and this is exactly what Levi does. He invites everybody over and says, let's have dinner with Jesus. And, and, so, and so they come. But what we also have to see in this is this is Matthew's public declaration that I will not live a private faith. I am going to put it right out there where everybody can see it. Isn't that interesting? I was thinking about this just this morning. Isn't it interesting? We'll get to the scribes and Pharisees in a minute. There were a couple of, of, of Pharisees who followed Jesus, but they followed him secretly. They were secret followers. But here we have a tax collector who just puts it right out there and says, guess what? Forget you, Rome. Forget you tax booth, forget wealth, all that stuff. I'm just going to fall. He puts it right out there. And so he has this dinner with Jesus and, and the disciples, and, and they're going to celebrate this together. All these disciples, all these, or all these, these other people. And notice that phrase, for there were many who followed him. There were many who followed him. Matthew's not alone. It's not just the twelve. Mark is making it very clear here that Jesus' followers come from a variety of stations of life. It's a variety of people. Jesus' Jesus followers come from every strata, and it's more than just the 12. It's it's many people who who are following him. But notice the response here, first of Jesus. He just comes and enjoys this this time of celebration with them. Interestingly, here, we don't read, is it bothering anybody else that my shoelace is untied and I'm going to trip over it? I know a few people are looking at it like, he's going to fall down, so let's just take care of it, and then we won't be distracted anymore. Um, Least of all, I won't be distracted anymore. But he just comes. Sometimes Jesus preaches to them, but in this case, he doesn't preach. He's just with them. He is befriending them. He is enjoying their hospitality. He is enjoying their fellowship, and he simply enjoys the hospitality that is offered. I find that really instructive. Sometimes that's exactly what we need to do as believers is simply enjoy the hospitality that is offered to us. 
In many cultures, the significance of this is lost. I know in American culture, the significance of this scene is, is pretty much lost. We don't think about eating with the wrong kind of people. But not in this culture. This is a scene that is filled with significance. In fact, the, the, the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, notice they don't talk to Jesus, they talk to the disciples, and said, why does he eat with them? That's a problem to them. But Jesus just enjoys this hospitality. But in many cultures, there, there are very, very clearly defined rules about eating and hospitality very clearly defined rules about how you do it. When we lived in Asia, we were completely ignorant about a lot of the rules of eating and hospitality, who eats with whom and how you eat, where you sit around the table, very important to figure out where you sit. I'm thinking it's a round table. Does it matter? You know, it matters. Believe me, it matters. Um, but we, um, so we hadn't been in Asia very long, and uh, Sue and I were studying Chinese with this, with this one teacher. She's a great teacher, and, um, and we thought, well, it would be nice to invite her and her husband and their daughter over to our home for dinner. And like a lot of families around us, not just foreign families, but even the Chinese families around us, everybody has a house helper because working, you know, just just maintaining a home where we lived in China was enormous work. So virtually everybody had a house helper that would come and, and help do the chores, the shopping, the cleaning, and so on and so forth. And so just like all of the other families around us, all the other Chinese families around us, we, we had a house helper. And uh, Xiao Li, was, she was a great house helper, but the thing about Xiao Li was she was a fantastic cook. Not only did her food taste good, it always looked beautiful. She just kind of had an artistic eye. And so we thought, we're inviting this family over for dinner. We know they will hate Western food. We're not even going to try that, because um, they had already informed us we hate Western food. Well, why invite them over to a dinner when we know they're going to hate it? So we said to Shaoli, would you cook a meal that we know they will enjoy? And she said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. And so she really knocked herself out and made this beautiful dinner. It was good. It was, it was nice. It was beautiful. And so we thought, well, she made all this food. We should invite her to eat with us. We were too stupid to know. What are we? Just, yeah, just stupid foreigners, you know, not playing by the rules of the, of the country. And so um, we invited her to have dinner with us. Well, all through the dinner, our teacher and her husband kept sending her back to the kitchen. Go get this. Go get that. Give me this. Give me that. Go get this. And so she was just getting up and getting this and getting up and getting that. And, and you know, as we were going through the meal and everything and all this food on the table, and we'd say, oh, Shali, this is really, really good. And our teacher would say, ah, needs more salt. Oh, it doesn't have enough this or too much that or oh, this one's okay or whatever. I mean, she was, and they would just, they were just obviously giving her a bad time. 
And our son was sitting there just getting madder and madder. He's a man of real justice, you know. That's kind of how his makeup is. And so it, after they left, our son just looked at us and said, who do they think they are? How rude. But what we didn't realize, in this culture, you don't invite the servant. We didn't think of her as a servant. We thought of her as a friend. It's just Shaoli. She's a part of the family. But you don't invite a servant to have dinner with your guests. You don't mix people together at a dinner like that. So not only was our teacher offended that we had invited the servant to dinner with us, but we put Shaoli in a very difficult and a very uncomfortable situation as well because she was being looked down on all evening. What was going on here was something that we were completely ignorant about. Because when you, you simply don't mix classes of people at the same table, and, and the people, the culture in which Jesus lived would have been highly sensitive to this kind of a situation. Eating together breaks down any barriers between castes and classes and ethnicities. People who eat together are regarded as equals. One is not higher than the other. They are equals. And in many cultures of this world, even today, you will never see people of one strata of society mixing with another. You would never see them eating together. But notice that Jesus befriends these people who recognize their need of him. These people who who recognize their own brokenness. Jesus touches them and transforms them. These people who to this point, no doubt, had only experienced disapproval and disgust from the rest of society. Tradition holds that Matthew took the gospel to northern Africa and to Ethiopia. After Jesus' death, he would take this invitation to follow Jesus to other people, other cultures, other, other places. And he sees the church spread far beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus sees this man who, who could become what he created him to be somebody who would take the kingdom to other places, an ambassador for God. But then we meet up with the reaction of the scribes, the Pharisees. I think it's easy to look at their response as merely a critical reaction to Jesus having, having dinner with all of these people. And I think it's easy to be become critical of the scribes and Pharisees. After all, we like to condemn them for their own condemning attitudes toward, toward Jesus, don't we? But I think if we do that, we miss the whole point of the story. Because I think the reality is there's a bit of Pharisee in all of us. I am convinced that the Pharisees really thought they were doing the right thing. 
They weren't just trying to be difficult and cantankerous. They really thought they were doing the right thing. They, they really felt that by keeping the law down to the finest detail, that they would earn God's approval. They were working very, very hard so that God would like them, so that God would approve of them. But even their tradition, Jesus says, goes beyond the law of Moses. Turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 15. And you'll see this. They really thought that, that they felt that, that God would call the righteous and not the sinner and not the other way around. But look what Jesus levels against them. Again, going back into Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus answered them and says, And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Notice that. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice what Jesus says. Why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Verse 6, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Here they are teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men, but, but the real issue there in verse 8, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, Jesus says it is, it's an issue of the heart, not, not just the actions. This is the burden of the scribes and Pharisees. Laying on themselves and laying on other people the, a burden that was far greater than the law of Moses. It is built on the belief that I can work harder, that I can be better, that I can make myself in some way acceptable to God. It is what one of our friends in the States calls moralism. Moralism is the attempt to perfect myself in my own power according to my own abilities and, and my own discipline. It is the attempt of the Christian to use whatever means I can, even spirituality and obedience and spiritual discipline, even spiritual formation, to relieve the, the burden of my spiritual failure. Moralism looks for a way to do more, to work harder, and it often feels the guilt and the weight of not measuring up to God's standard. And so, like the, the Pharisees, we add rules and disciplines that go even beyond what God asks of us. We, we add to the, the law our own tradition. As Isaiah says, you do all these outward things, but what is going on inside your heart. Like my friend Dr. Scherer, we look so healthy on the outside, but on the inside, so filled with a life-threatening disease. 
Jesus says this is an unnecessary burden to carry throughout your life. He says, this is what I am saving you from. This this is what I, I have come to relieve you of, the burden you have thrown on yourself. My burden is light, my load is easy. You cannot deal with your own guilt, your own shame, your own sickness in your own power. Let me do it for you. The obvious irony of the story here is that those who think themselves well are actually the ones who are most sick. While those who are sick are made well. There is a blessedness in knowing that we are unwell. We are the ones who most, or who are the ones who most hunger and thirst for righteousness? Those who have experienced the most unrighteousness, the, the most injustice in this world who are most deeply aware of their own brokenness and their own need. It is, it is a gracious gift when God so gently and lovingly brings to our attention our places of sickness and brokenness. Living in complacent comfort is no blessing. It is a greater blessing to fully and so, be fully and soberly aware of our utter brokenness, like Levi. And that is when we are most able to hear Jesus' invitation to follow him. His invitation is always one that leads to wholeness, to, to healing, to life. What did Jesus see when he looked at Levi? How marvelous that this man responded to the quiet, compelling overtures of the Christ. Because of his response, all the world has been enriched. Because of Matthew's coming, millions upon millions of men and women have been given a glimpse into the splendor and majesty of Jesus the Christ as the Messiah, the King of Israel, God's anointed. In Matthew's account, there is recorded the majestic Sermon on the Mount, itself the loftiest standard for human conduct ever presented on the planet. It is Matthew who stirs our spirits with the awareness that in the coming of the Christ, the Old Testament prophets were fulfilled and vindicated. And it is Matthew who has given us the magnificent insights into the future plans for God, of God for his people, recorded so splendidly in the Olivet Discourse. If ever our flagging spirits need to be rejuvenated, if ever our heavy hearts burdened by our own limitations need to be lifted, a heartening exercise is to remind ourselves of what the Lord made of Levi. If Jesus could take a tough tax man and turn him into a loyal ambassador for the Most High God, he can do mighty deeds with any one of us if we but respond to his invitation and become totally available to his tender touch. Two ways to respond to that invitation. We see them both in this story. Levi, open, receptive. Pharisees, closed, resistant. Where are you in that story? 
To what extent are you open and receptive to what the Spirit of God is saying to you? To what extent are you resisting Him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for encouraging us with the story of a transformed life. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, as we sit here, you would show us those places where we are open, but more importantly, show us the places where we are resisting that transforming, redemptive touch. where we are resisting your invitation. Help us to lay down that resistance and to open to you, to take up the invitation that leads to healing and wholeness and a journey with you. We ask this in Jesus' name.